The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. In this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Natalie Gelata Friel. Natalie's hometown is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. While at West Point, Natalie was in F Company, 4th Regiment, Frogs, and Charlie Company, 4th Regiment, Cowboys. Natalie participated in Women's Lacrosse, Foreign Academy Exchange Program, and Spanish Club while at West Point. Natalie branched military intelligence and served in Germany, Kosovo, Iraq, and Washington, D.C. Natalie studied foreign languages and engineering while at West Point and has an MBA from Duke University, the Fakwa School of Business, from 2015. In this episode, Natalie talks about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and her ability to learn the languages and the cultures of the organizations she moves into and be able to communicate to people at their level and build the team to success. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Okay, we're with Natalie Gelata Friel. Welcome to Through the Gray. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me here. And so the first question, why West Point? Well, actually, my, my father wanted my brother to go, and he's one year older than me. Uh, and my brother did not go to West Point, but all this talk about West Point got me interested in it instead. And um, I visited West Point during one of their summer leader programs. And you had a chance to experience the cadet life. And, and I just had this feeling there that I had found my people. Uh, there were lots of, of leaders, student athletes, people who really liked tough challenges. And it was the only college that I had visited where I just I felt like I belonged there. Um, so it, that was that was my number one choice of places to go to to school. 
Um, I also, you know, I, my parents didn't have enough money to send me to, to college. And so a lot of where I was looking to go to schools were based on, you know, where could I get a scholarship? Where could I get um, ROTC? And, and so West Point also met that need for me. But uh, regardless of that, it was just, it felt like home for me. Now, was the military aspect a second part um, or was the physical and the, the leadership challenges the primary driver? Yeah, it, it was the latter. Um, to be honest, I don't think I, I fully understood what the military was about when I went there. And, um, and so that, that kind of grew on me later um, while I was at West Point and, and figured out, okay, this is what I've actually signed up for. Uh, but I don't think I, I quite understood that when I, I, I was really very idealistic, um, you know, very much romanticizing the, the fact that there was an honor code, that it was building leaders of character. Um, all those things just um, were exciting to me. And, um, and just so you know, I, I actually applied to the class of 2000 and got into the class of 2000. And, and then I had an injury playing lacrosse. Um, hurt my knee. And so I had to, to reapply and fortunately joined class of 2001, which I, I don't regret. And so that road to recovery and, and then getting ready for the class of 2001, what was that like? Um, you know, I, I went to another college. I went to University of Delaware for a year um, after I had surgery and I, I had to spend time rehabilitating. Um, and so I had a scholarship to University of Delaware, so I, I took, uh, took advantage of that and went there for a year. And, um, and I experienced really a, uh, a real college life with uh, lots of, uh, of fun and, and kind of partying. And, um, and it, it really reinforced my, uh, just in terms of who I am, I, I felt like I wanted to, uh, it reinforced my desire to go to West Point, that experience, even though, you know, it was great school, great people, but it just wasn't for me. So, um, but it was good to have that, that, um, experience and make sure I knew what I was signing up for. And so with, with a year of college under your belt, um, and the rehab to your knee, walking into West Point, um, and Beast Barracks, how was that? Um, it was, it was definitely, uh, a shock. I remember getting yelled at on the first day for, for looking around and not looking straight ahead. And um, I just, you know, I don't think I, I quite fully understood what I was getting into. Um, and, you know, even though I had been away from home for a year already, West Point being there and, and having that difficult transition during Beast, that was probably the first time I had felt homesick. Um, and, and remember calling my parents and crying, um, when my squad, we got in trouble for, um, somebody had some M&Ms that they snuck in and, uh, of course they, they were a good teammate, so they shared it with all of us, but we got caught. And, um, because of this M&M incident, our squad leader really drilled us for several days and didn't let us eat. Like he was having us do, um do a lot of knowledge and interrupting us during all our meals so that we, we didn't get a chance to eat. And, and that kind of, that really beat me down. Um, and, and I remember, you know, calling my parents and crying, like, Oh, I don't know if this is for me. But, um, 
you know, we made it through that. We had the changeover of squad leaders and, and things got better for us. And, um, yeah. And so, you know, got through beast and, um, and I would say that was the hardest time for me at West Point and, and all of Playbeer. But, but that's also, I think, the time that created the, the greatest memories of, of all those traditions and things, the, the crazy things that cadets do. Now, was it the, 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 the phone call with your parents? Was it leaning into that squad and just kind of suffering together? What got you through it? Yeah, I think it was that, um, that, the, you know, really having that support of, of squad mates that, um, and, and I, I feel like that was what made the West Point experience the amazing one that it was for me, that um, you build this great bond with people because of these shared difficult experiences that you go through together. And, um, you know, that, that's a hard bond to break. And, and it's, um, yeah, I think I had a great squad that was, um, you know, it, it didn't feel like there was, there was someone that wasn't pulling their own weight. Everybody was, was pulling their own weight. Um, so yeah, I think that that's what got me through it. And, um, and yeah, I don't say, I don't think that I was ready to quit at, at that point. You know, it didn't, it wasn't that bad, but, um, yeah, I think I went through my, my moment of difficulty there just, just like everyone else probably. I think there's all like moments in time that you can either like, uh, laugh through difficult circumstances mm-hmm. or cry. And it depends on who you're with <laughs> that makes the difference if you're laughing through it or you're crying through it. Yeah. And so that the transition to the academic year and, and you leave that squad behind, mm-hmm. um, how did the transition to the academic year go? Um, it went well. And it, w- it was a funny thing. When I walked into my first uh, room, I was in F4 um, as a plebe, walked into my room with our, our team leader and, and I met my first roommate, who was Kristen Kempton, uh, Kristen Lewis at uh, now. And it was funny, we were both standing there at attention, you know, meeting our, our team leader and, and they kept asking us some questions and we hadn't met each other yet. And they, they asked her, you know, where are you from? And she said, you know, Pittsburgh, sir. And then they asked me, where are you from? Pittsburgh, sir. And then they said, okay, what sport do you play, Kristen? She said, lacrosse, sir. What sport do you play? Uh, not Kristen, but, uh, you know, they were asking us these questions and, and I said, lacrosse, sir. And we're looking at each other from the corners of our eyes, like, who is this person that's from Pittsburgh and also plays lacrosse? And <laughs> so at that point, you know, we, we clearly had a lot in common and um, it was just such a great experience to have her as my, my roommate. Um, Kristen was prior service, as you might know, um, and, and just she taught me a lot, too. I just, you know, she was a great role model, someone I was always trying to shine my shoes as nicely as her. And um, so that was a, a great person to, to have as my, my partner there. Um, and the academic year, that was, that was really um, fun for me. I was um, excited to be back into academics. That was kind of like my strong point at West Point, whereas the military skills and, and even somewhat the physical areas were, were tougher for me. Yeah, I mean, with, with women's lacrosse, why were the physical ones so hard? Because, I mean, 
you were putting in a lot of time with lacrosse. Yeah, um, you know, things like uh, swimming. So plebe swimming, I am not a great swimmer. And I just, you know, that was such a haze for me. I remember the timing of it. I'd have to run from, um, from Thayer all the way to get to swimming and uh, couldn't wear my contacts. So I was blind in the water and, um, and then I just wasn't a great swimmer. And so during that Bob and travel, uh, exercise they had us do, I remember I, I slipped at the bottom of the pool and I couldn't bob myself up. And they had to put one of those poles or canes down in the water to pull me out. <laughs> and so, you know, it just was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I am not, I am not good at plebe swimming. Um, and then physically, I, I remember they were testing out the new uh, physical fitness tests on us at some point. And, and part of the, the new APFT was doing pull-ups. And I had just never had to do pull-ups before, and I couldn't do any. Um, you know, I was a big fat zero on that and, and failed it. And, and I can do pull-ups now, and I learned how to do pull-ups, you know, after that event. But um, I just remember really being uh, ashamed in these cases that, you know, I, I was looking like an idiot and, and couldn't do these things um, at first. And, and so, yeah, there were, there were new physical things that we were asked to do um, that just weren't up my alley. And so as, as, as time went on at West Point, where did you find the areas that you um, really kind of doubled down and tried to invest your time and effort in? Um, you know, for me, the, the, the piece that I, I went to West Point for and, and that I really um, look to build and, and still continue to try and work on today is, is around leadership. And um, so that's, that's my biggest passion and, um, you know, was really looking for chances to have greater responsibility in leading larger organizations. And, and so I think I, um, that's something that, that I was and still am passionate about um, and loved some of the classes that we had around that, around character. Um, even in the, I took some of the advanced Millart classes where you were learning about different leaders, military leaders. And, um, that was just super interesting to me, uh, to be, to have that study of leadership. So, so definitely doubled down there. And, um, and also languages. I loved studying languages and cultures. There was even some element of that in, in dirt where they were that first class we took, um, as plebes where they were talking about, um, you know, how the environment affects the culture and the geographies affect culture. And so that's something that's always been very interesting to me is uh, living and learning about other cultures and their languages. Um, so I've, you know, studied that, studied languages at West Point and then have continued to dabble around with that um, in my, my civilian career. Now, was that something um, when you were growing up in Pittsburgh, that you were exposed to a lot, whether it was uh, languages or culture or uh, the rest of the world, or is that something that was kind of uh, nurtured and, and, and bloomed at West Point? I guess it was because my mother, um, she was from Chile, and and I was born in Chile as well, but left there as a baby. 
And um, and then she she had been an English teacher in Chile, but she was a Spanish teacher in the United States. And and while I was a child, she she got her master's degree in linguistics. And so she probably was talking to me a lot about um, languages and and. Um, but yeah, so I had a lot of exposure to to South America for sure. Um, but have ended up, you know, spending a lot of my life in Europe. So I don't think that that I had much exposure to that growing up. But but certainly the love of languages was um, from my mother, and and I think my dad. He set a pretty good example there. He's American, but um, he met my mother in Chile, and he had never spoken Spanish before, but he learned how to speak Spanish while he was there. Um, he was a steel worker working down there for three years. And, and to this day, um, you know, he, he can speak Spanish and gets along quite well there. And so with the focus on foreign languages and the focus on environmental engineering, uh, how did that impact um, your choices for branch and uh, posting? Yeah, that was probably intertwined there. Um, I I wanted, I, I pretty much knew early on that I wanted to be a military intelligence officer. And, and it probably was based on, on somewhat of an incorrect perception of what that branch was all about. Um, I was associating it with being a foreign area officer, um, with, you know, maybe sort of that 007 spy kind of uh, life love, you know, going out and learning about what's the enemy language and culture about. Uh, and there is a piece of that in it. But um, yeah, that was really clear to me that, okay, this is the branch I want to be in. Uh, and and then with posting, um, I, I did want to serve overseas somewhere. And, um, and so, you know, my husband, he had graduated in 99 two years before us, and um, he had already posted to Germany. And so that that pretty much solidified. Uh, and we were both aligned on wanting to go to Germany, so there wasn't, um, you know, it was, it was certainly something we were both interested in. Uh, so, yeah, that's where we ended up for the first assignment. And just to backtrack real quick, how did, how did that transition of um, meeting Jamie Friel, who is your, your current husband, who is your mm-hmm. husband, uh, and then uh, having him graduate two years prior to you and get into the military, how that impacts some of your decisions while you were still at school? Um, I don't know that it, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly impacted. Um, I was worried about not being able to get the same assignment as him uh, in Germany. And... Um, you know, was was glad when when I was able to secure that without having to pull some kind of strings later down the road or convince someone to put me in the same place as my husband uh, because we weren't married yet at the time. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I, I um, it, it impacted my my decision of where I went for um, military schooling. So he was at Fort Benning during the summer when I had to choose to go to either airborne or air assault school. And and I chose airborne school, um, you know, mainly because I was going to be able to go down to to Fort Benning and and see him there. Um, I wasn't too keen about jumping out of the airplane part of it, but um, (laughs) glad I did that. So, so yeah, it did impact a few choices. 
I, I, I've found that when I, when I can reach out to somebody who's done something prior, whether mm-hmm. it was lifting the veil of being a platoon leader, or lifting the veil of, hey, what does this course or that course look like? I always felt better prepared. Um, and like you talked about with uh, mm-hmm. West Point, that beast experience, I think, c- catches a lot of people off guard. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if, if maybe having Jamie two years ahead is like, hey, this is what you can expect for um, basic or this is what you can expect for yeah. the real army. I don't know. I mean, his his army experience was so different. His path was very different from mine with, um, you know, going to the infantry, going to uh, ranger school and the type of training he had, the Bradley leaders course um, and, and doing just, uh, you know, a lot of the training that the infantry does which was quite lacking in the military intelligence um, officer basic course. It's really focused on, you know, analytics and being able to do the preparation of the battlefield and it, it very much on um, your thinking skills and your, you know, how do you, how do you analyze situations? Um, and, and I felt ill-prepared later on in, in some of my, my military experiences when, when I was put in situations where I had to do things like like a, a, a live fire exercise or being even later when I was assigned to an infantry battalion um, would have helped to have a little bit more of, of that training. Uh, but um, yeah, it, so it was a little bit different for us in terms of, of that path. And so you graduate from West Point, um, you go to basic course mm-hmm. uh, and prep to go to Germany. What was that like? Well, um, so officer basic course was in Fort Huachuca, um, Arizona. And, um, I, I enjoyed the course. Um, it, it really felt like it, it was right up my alley. Um, you know, nine 11 happened while I was at, um, at the course. And I just distinctly remember that experience with, uh, they, they locked us all down uh, on base. And, um, you know, we, we had access to looking at, you know, classified information and computers at that time. And, and really, they put us on task right away uh, when 9-11 happened to say, hey, okay, um, you know, training's over. Now get to work on figuring out who did this. And um, it, it just was a total change in um, perspective in terms of what, what we were up against and what we were going to be up against when we went out to our units. And when you um, completed basic course and then went on to Germany, did it feel like it was a whipsaw um, when you got sent to Kosovo that the focus had come off of 9-11? Or what was that like? Um, at that time, yeah, so we went to Germany and um, there was still this constant rotation of troops going into Kosovo. And I remember at that time, they really hadn't sent, uh, while we were in Kosovo, the first unit was sent to Iraq. Uh, and so when we went to Kosovo, they still had not gone there yet. Um, so I, I didn't quite feel like I was missing out on anything, but we did feel like the real fight was in Afghanistan. And um, I do have to say, though, that that I think the experience in Kosovo was um, 
was the best training ground that I could have had for my later experience in Iraq because I was doing the work that um, uh, at the brigade level, multinational brigade, I was in the, the G2 space and but was just doing the things that I had been trained to do, um, but dealing with not not quite an enemy, but it was a um, you know a complex situation on the ground there. Um, so using all my training and really sharpening my pencil in terms of being an S2. Uh, but we did find out while we were in Kosovo, um, things were escalating, and, and we knew that we were going to be going to Iraq uh, once we got home. So talk me through that that transition back from Kosovo and then the preparation for it, Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, so I had been uh, in the brigade intelligence uh, group while I was in Germany and then in Kosovo. Uh, when I got back from from Kosovo, uh, my, my boss wanted to support my desire to have um, more of a, a troop leading experience. And um, they didn't have an intelligence unit there, but and so they, they decided to make me the XO um, for the headquarters unit. And so, you know, I, I went completely out of my intel role and I was instead in charge of uh, logistics and the maintenance um, for, for the brigade headquarters and for the, the reconnaissance unit that was attached to it. Um, so I was, I was in a, an XO role. And so for the next five months there, I was working on, um, you know, transportation setup, setting up rail loads, um, making sure that we had all the mill vans equipped with everything we needed for Iraq, um, setting up all the training exercises. That's where I did a, um, was, was leading my unit through a, a night uh, live fire exercise, which I felt completely untrained to do. Um, and, and that was like a first for me, having to put on, um, you know, night vision goggles. And then I had all the Blue Force tracker and a GPS and a map and weapon and trying to talk to people on the radio. And, you know, that, that is not what they train you to do in uh, military intelligence school. So, <laughs> uh, but this was good. You know, it was out of my comfort zone. And um, so, yeah, that was, you know, I, I deployed our unit to Kuwait and then, um, you know, did the convoy from Kuwait up to, to Bakaba, um, as the EXO of that unit. And then at that same time, um, Jamie was still in the same brigade with you. Had you guys married at that point? Yes, we married right after I graduated. Um, and so, so we were married, um, through Kosovo and, and through Iraq, um, in Kosovo, we had been in the same brigade, and, and because Kosovo was a safer environment, I could actually see him um, one day a week, even though we were in different sectors, uh, because they had buses that were going from base camp to base camp for, for soldiers to, to move around. Um, so yeah, that was great. Got to see my husband while, while deployed. Now, the preparation... Um, for both of you going into Iraq and the unknown, mm -hmm. um, what was that like? Um, deploying with your spouse at the same time to the same location, but completely different jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, we were living in Germany and, um, 
we were, I think we were in somewhat not similar jobs at that time, which was interesting. He was an S4 for the infantry battalion and I was an XO. And, and so we were both learning how to use TC aims and figuring out all these um, rail loads and um, these different systems that you need to deploy. Uh, so that was funny because, you know, for the first time we were kind of doing some, some of the same things. Um, and also some of the similar things we were doing were, you know, trying to make sure that all the, all the troops had the right gear, um, bulletproof vests and, um, you know, the right amounts of, of ammunition and, uh, even like toilet paper, you know, everything, we were trying to stuff everything into these mill vans. So, uh, I remember it was very, very late nights for both of us. And um, because it was really this really quick turnover, uh, five months between when we redeployed from Kosovo and deployed to Iraq, where we had to do, uh, you know, refit of, of the units and, you know, get everyone trained and get all the um, equipment and supplies ready to, to go. Um, and so I remember thinking at the time, you know, I was thankful we didn't have children at the time um, because, you know, we were working round the clock all the time um, and we're gone on a lot of training exercises and things and so I think that was very hard made me reflect that it was very hard for the the people that had families that had kids that were just coming back from Kosovo and going straight to Iraq I mean they really didn't get a chance to see them much during that time So at, at that time I was uh, back in the states and I was going to training centers I was doing a lot of field time back to training centers. Um, and yeah. it took me a bit when I actually got into theater for it to become real, to mm -hmm. feel real, like the level of threat. This is, this is not the same as the training center rotation for yeah. you and Jamie. This is not the same as Kosovo. Yes. <laughs> when, when was that moment for you? Um, probably for me, it was the first time, um, it, and I would say it was maybe a month after we arrived into theater, um, when the the insurgency really started to pick up um, in Iraq. So it was, um, I believe it was February 2004. And for that first year prior to us being there, uh, you know, I don't know that that insurgent movement had gained as much momentum as, as what it had at that time when we were there. Um, but, you know, we had our first mortar attack on FOB Warhorse. And, um, and that was scary for me. And I think, you know, later on that became a, a twice a week or weekly event was getting mortar attacked. But the first time it happens um, is, is scary. And you know, I remember being in the, the mess hall when that happened and it was like this big tent. So there's no protection there and just, you know, dove under a table like everybody else. And then um, tried to get out of there because I didn't want to be in this big target of a tent. Um, so, so, you know, that's that's when it hit me that um, we were in a different environment. And uh, soon thereafter, we also had... Um, a, a suicide bomber attack on FOB Warhorse. And so this was the event that killed, um, you know, a, a colleague of mine, Captain Humayn Khan, uh, who was 
on the news quite a bit um, for his sacrifice. And several of my soldiers were actually on guard duty at that time as well. And so they were uh, they were injured by the shrapnel and had to get um, medevaced out of there. And um, that that explosion was just like nothing else that I've ever felt in my life. I fell to the ground and I remember shaking and I couldn't stop shaking for a few minutes, uh, not knowing, you know, what just happened. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that that was a total turning point of, you know, this, this enemy that we're dealing with is very different, is willing to kill themselves and blow themselves up to, um, to harm us. And so, you know, that, that was a real escalation of the situation. How did you react to that? What was your response? Um, when that event happened, um, you know, I, I didn't quite know what had happened. Um, and, and I remember, you know, running over with, um, my roommate at the time was, um, was Erin McGill. So she's now Erin Gillum, but she was our classmate. And, um, and Erin was working in the logistics battalion with, uh, with Captain Khan. And, and we both ran over to the, um, the aid station to figure out, you know, what was happening and, and, and who were the injured people that were, uh, being brought over there. And, um, and that's when, you know, she realized that, um, that people from her unit had been injured. And I realized that some of my soldiers, uh, they were some of my maintenance soldiers had been injured. And so then I went over to the, uh, the helicopter to see them before they went off. Um, and, um, you know, we, we realized that, um, you know, we were also starting after that event, we also had IEDs starting to blow up. Um, one of them killing one of the soldiers in our, um, headquarters brigade, who was part of the protection force for the brigade commander for Colonel Pittard. Uh, and, you know, I knew at that point that all these soft-shelled Humvees that we had come over to Iraq with were just not going to cut it. And, um, you know, I was on a mission to try and, and get all of our vehicles over to Anaconda to get the, um, I forget what they called it, but the, uh, the steel-plated doors added onto them. We called it level two at the time, level two kits. Level two, yeah. Um, so, so that was, you know, we, we quickly realized that we were in a different environment and um, needed to upgrade our, our protection of the vehicles and, um, and just, you know, be on, on alert. Um, and it was at this time as well that, the, um, that, I, that I actually changed roles in Iraq um, so I had been a, an XO, uh, really kind of not playing the role of an intelligence officer at that time. Um, but I was asked uh, if, if I would go and be the, an S2 over at um, Task Force 2-2 Infantry because they were losing their S2. Uh, he, was, he was getting moved in theater to go be a, a company commander for an intelligence unit. And they needed an S2, and they looked around in their... Um, you know, whatever the, the military HR system is. And they were looking for where do they have intel officers? And they found me in this um, XO role. And they're like, what is she doing in this role? 
you know, we need we need intel officers, and so they um, they found me. And fortunately, I had a very very good advocate in terms of my boss who um, believed in me and um, was really championing me to to go to this role, even though. They weren't supposed, at that time, they weren't supposed to have females in the infantry units uh, because I was actually going to be assigned to the, the infantry unit. Uh, and so there were, I know there were concerns from some of the leadership about me being in the same unit as my husband and me being a female in an infantry unit. And uh, fortunately, with support of my boss and the commander of 2-2 Infantry, Colonel Newell, was an extremely open-minded out of the box thinking type of, of commander. And he was, uh, he was all for it. And so, um, he said, they said, look, you know, she's fully trained. She just did all this Intel training in Kosovo in another deployment, bring her over. And, um, they kind of did a test run on me before they brought me over. Um, just to see, I think they were trying to see if I had what it took to go to an infantry unit. <laughs> um, so they, they had me come over for a test run where they were doing a night raid, and, um, and they had me join along as the, the intel officer. And, um, I mean, this, this was just incredible. Like, it, I was in a totally different world. Um, over, it, this was over in the, the breadbasket of Muktadaya within the Dayala province of, of Iraq, and um, they were doing a raid. It was a, a big mission, and um, and they were sneaking up on the objective. So they, they parked somewhere else and, and had all the soldiers kind of going very quietly, sneaking up to this objective. And so I was going with them, um, again, wearing my, my night vision goggles, which was totally foreign to me. Like, how do I, how do I see in these things? Um, and... And then, you know, they did the raid, they, they cleared houses and secured uh, prisoners, and I had to go in afterwards and was looking for, you know, key intelligence or things, documentation, things that we evidence uh, of any weapons. Um, but, you know, that was eye-opening for me of like, okay, change of mission. Now I'm in a totally different uh, space than, than where I was uh, when I initially went to Iraq. What was it like earning trust uh, with that organization and, and building a, a reputation uh, in, in a new role? Um, you know, I have to say it probably took a month or two. At least that was um, that was some of the feedback I got. You know, I had to to really uh, gain an understanding of the environment and the the enemies and what was going on. Um, Unfortunately, during that time, the, the acting S2 was still there um, and, and hadn't moved on to his new role. Uh, so I had a bit of a transition point there to kind of learn, you know, what are the names and players that I need to know about within this space? Um, but I would say, you know, then I started doing the briefings, daily briefings to the, and, and doing the daily um, uh, intelligence summaries for the commanders. And um, it just... You know, it, it it felt like my element. Um, it's probably maybe the the only time I've had in my career where I felt fully trained for the mission I was on, and and I felt like I was very competent at that role at that time. Um, 
Uh, I still don't feel that way today in what I do, but um, <laughs> at that time, it, like I said, you know, the Kosovo training really was was great in in kind of sharpening those skills as an intel officer, and um, and I was able to earn respect very quickly. Um, and I think you know they, they certainly tested me a few times of of having me go out on raids, making sure that I could keep up, and and I could. Um, but, you know, I think the, the biggest way that I, I added value was in terms of um, my, my approach to being an intelligence officer was not just to report what happened, but to do my best to analyze and provide the commanders with the, so what, you know, so what does this information mean? And, um, and setting up, you know, weekly targeting meetings with them to say, and, and based on all this, you know, 300 reports that I've received, I think we need to go after this target or go after this insurgent. Um, and so, um, you know, I think running that targeting meeting with the S3 hand in hand, um, we had a very good relationship and um, it just, it, it you know, I, I just fit within that role and that space at that time. Um, it was a very good fit. And, and like I said, our, my commander, um, was in full support of, of me. And so that made a difference too, that, you know, he was someone whose respect was hard to earn, but once you had that, um, you know, he, he was very, a very strong advocate. What was it like, um, that day-to-day fight, that day-to-day competition, uh, and transitioning out of Iraq, out of that fight, out of that competition, out of that mission? Mm-hmm. What was that like? <clears throat> um, you mean coming coming back from Iraq to? Yeah. 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 Um, that was you know it, it, that was a I almost want to say it was a letdown. I mean, uh, towards the end of my time in Iraq, we were sent on on what was probably the most significant uh, mission and and in terms of what I did in Iraq, and that was Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, um, which was, was a significant urban conflict um, situation that that um, I was an S2 for. And um, after that, I, you know, came back to Germany um, and went back to this role of being a garrison S2 officer, which... Uh, I have to say that wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, that was kind of boring. And, you know, you're, you're sort of processing security clearances. And, um, yeah, when there's not a threat, the, the role of an intelligence officer is, is not that exciting, uh, at least for me. So, uh, so it was a letdown. I kind of realized that, you know, I felt what I had just been through uh, – was probably as good as it gets for an intel officer to be an S2 for an infantry battalion that is deployed in combat in uh, an important mission. And, um, you know, I, I felt like that was really a moment in, in time that I wasn't going to repeat quite easily. <laughs> so, um, and I, I do have to say, you know, it, there was... Um, after I came back from that experience in Fallujah and came back to to Germany, um, you know, I, I think that I hadn't realized how much uh, anxiety or, or 
fear had, had built up in me at that time. And, and we also lost a number of good friends during that um, experience. And you can't really process that. You can't process the, uh, during the actual combat event. Um, people like Captain Sean Sims and Lieutenant Ed Iwan were killed there. Our Sergeant Major was killed, um, Sergeant Major Falkenberg. And you just have to keep going each day with the mission. And um, I experienced uh, chest pains for a while. And I even got an EKG because I couldn't figure out why I had chest pains. And the EKGs were fine. And so nothing medically was wrong with me. But, you know, I, I realized later, you know, I think it was this uh, something like an anxiety experience that I had to to go through um, and, and uh, decompress from when I got back from, from Iraq. Um, so yeah, I think there's that the physiological effect um, that, that happened. I, I know for me to a degree, um, staying busy and staying focused on the mission mm-hmm. um, allowed you to compartmentalize the risk and the fear. Yes. And so when the mission went away, Mm-hmm. Guess what came screaming back? Yes, exactly. Yeah, when you can stay busy, it's it's exactly you know that compartmentalizing that helps to to continue going. And so when you're like doing the TPS report and the cover sheets, uh, <laughs> yeah, that that just not counting it anymore. Yes. Yeah. And then my, my, my next role was in Washington, D.C., because I thought, you know, hey, I'm going to, I think, you know, I might be done with my time in the Army, but I'm going to try out a strategic intelligence role in D.C. before I, I call it quits. And, um, and that was, probably was even worse. Like, it was, it was very much, um, it was way too removed from the, um, you know, what I found exciting and um compelling about the army mission. So, so yeah, TPS reports. (laughs) (laughs) So the decision, um, talk me through, um, that decision between you and Jamie. Yeah. So I would say when, when Jamie and I both graduated from West Point in our minds, we were a hundred percent committed to a career in the army. Uh, we loved it. We loved West Point. We loved the army um, all in. And, and I think, you know, five years later, after we, we were just coming back from Iraq, um, there was just this 180 degree change in mindset that happened. And, and I think it was, it was probably three things. Um, one was we wanted to have, we wanted to start a family at that time and, and had realized with these back-to-back deployments, um, we just, we anticipated that that was how it was going to be for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years if we stayed in. And um, we didn't feel like that lifestyle for our kids and for us as parents was what we wanted to do. Um, And, you know, it it just didn't feel right for one person to stay in and the other not to because we had, we had really loved it so much. Um, And, you know, I had mentioned it before that, that that role I had in, in Fallujah, in Iraq, that felt to me like the peak of what I could do and what I wanted to do as an intelligence officer. And so, um, 
it was it was really deflating to me to think about other roles as I started to look at the, the career progression there. Um, I was like, you know what? I think I've done the most exciting role that I could have done. <laughs> um, and then maybe the third thing was was just uh, my commitment to the mission had had somewhat waned. Um, it wasn't that I felt like I had done anything bad in Iraq um, and, and that Operation Phantom Fury, that was that was a, a black and white situation where it was good versus evil. But um, but there were many times during Iraq where I, I questioned, you know, are we are we hurting more innocent people than doing good? Is this uh, is this really the mission that, that I want to be part of? And and, you know, I just I didn't believe in in being a leader for people if I wasn't fully behind that mission. So, um, yeah, and I think for both of us, that was kind of, uh, we were aligned on that, that feeling and that shift in mindset. And so you make the decision, um, talk me through the transition of, of where to next. Yeah. So, um, which is, is kind of like our uh, modus operandus. Jamie and I, we, we like to do things together. And, and we both looked at different options for, you know, what to do next. We were debating about just going straight out and getting jobs, um, maybe getting MBAs and starting a business and um, decided to look at going through a headhunter agency. So we used Cameron Brooks and, um, and they talked us through the option of, of working in corporate America, working in business. And the fact that a lot of businesses were looking for people like us who had uh, military experience and could bring leadership to their companies. And, um, and they gave us some, some good advice. Um, when you go through a, an agency like that, they have you interview with at least 10 companies. Um, and, and they told us, you know, don't just look at the, the industry, but make sure that you're, you're joining a great company that has great, uh, really a, a strong business fundamental and culture behind it. It's not just the industry, but also the company has to be the right one. Um, and so, you know, Jamie and I, we both interviewed with, with multiple companies and, um, and the company that really stood out for us that we both got offers to was Genentech, uh, which is a, a biotechnology company. And at that time, it was 2006, they had um, they had just earned this this um, number one company to work for uh, designation in Fortune magazine, um, and so that you know there was a lot of um, exciting things about the company itself that were attractive to both of us. Um, it really compelling mission around innovation. So innovative medicines, not not generics. They were out there discovering new medicines in a new space called biologics. Uh, they were all about patients and doing what's right for patients and also a great place to work for employees. So um, that was attractive to us, especially, you know, coming from the army where you feel that you're part of something bigger than you and, um, you know, I think most of us joined the army because we wanted to do good for the world. And, and so I felt like this company uh, and the industry in general, but especially this company was was speaking to that need to do good for people. 
how did the change in culture um, and the change in geography, because you guys went to um, California, yeah. How did that? How did that go for you and Jamie when you went to the the West Coast uh, and started working for a uh, civilian bio biotech company? Yeah. Well, um, that was a big change for us to go to California. We lived we lived there for six years, and this is Southern California, uh, which is also different than Northern uh, California. Uh, but we loved it there. We loved the location, um, the culture. You know, it, it really was a great company to work for. But initially at that site where we, we joined, um, there were about four of us who uh, were military officers that joined the company at that time. And they were looking to bring in military officers because they were growing so quickly and they needed people with leadership experience. And they found that the they had a lot of scientists, a lot of people who knew science, but they didn't quite know how to lead people. And so they were looking to kind of inject this um, leadership strength into their culture. But that made it a bit hard for us because um, the four of us who joined, we, we were met with some resistance from employees. The, um, you know, really the employees who were, were engineers, scientists, and, and they were, many of them would openly question, you know, what, what experience do you have that you're bringing to the table here? And that's relevant to, to this industry. Um, so, so there was a bit of that at first, I'll be honest. Um, and, um, but they, yeah, um, there were also a lot of people who were excited about, like, you know, obviously they hired us because they were excited about us. Um, so it, it was mixed. Um, and did they send you on like a night mission or something with the biotech kids to earn trust? <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything like that. Um, but, you know, I have to say that it, it really only took about a few months um, for for all of us that were there to show that, that we, we weren't just sort of um, going to be flies on the wall, you know, that we could add value. And um, just that, that experience from the military of, of being able to deal with a tight deadline and deal with, with organizing some type of complex um, set of, of topics. Um, and then, you know, getting teams moving in the same direction. Um, and then, you know, probably the biggest thing was just the basic leadership fundamentals that we learned at West Point about you take care of your people. And, um, you know, that was missing there in a lot of cases. And, and, you know, that was why they brought us there. And so that, that did set us apart. And um, we still had to learn about biotech. But uh, at that time, not a lot of people had experience with biologics manufacturing. Um, so it was really a good time to join and learn about this, uh, this nascent industry that was, that was growing. And so as, as you and Jamie are both getting uh, more experience and more reps and you're, you're building um, the culture in Genentech to, to, to be a little bit uh, more organized and not just necessarily uh, engineer focused, but uh, more leadership oriented. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? And then the transition uh, to the next step for you and Jamie? Yeah. Um I don't, you know, that really, that really opened up some opportunities um, 
for me and, and, and also helped me to grow. Um, the fact that, that I didn't have as much technical knowledge as others and I could focus on, um, on leading people was, was actually very beneficial <laughs> because it allowed me to focus on people. Um, and, um, so, so I remember at that first site that, that we worked at for about six years in California, um, I started a, an extended leadership program and, and a culture team that I was leading at the site. And, um, and we were constantly working on addressing employee feedback that they were submitting in surveys about, hey, you know, my manager's not, not taking care of me or... Um, and, and so, you know, I was part of a movement there to, um, and we focused it a lot on, on management, uh, development and, um, and that was awesome. You know, I, I felt like, too, that was a sweet spot for me where I could, um, help with developing myself in an area I was interested in, but also teach others about, uh, some of the, the learnings that we had from, from West Point that were ingrained in us all the time while we were there. Um, not everyone has that as part of their, their university or college uh, education. And then the transition uh, to a new company and being based out of Switzerland. Or is, was, it, was it Switzerland? Did I screw that up? Yeah, I, well, I went to uh, Roche is a company that acquired Genentech. Um, and... Um, at that time, I, I moved first to Roche at a site they had in South Carolina, and then I moved to Switzerland after that. What was that that jump, not only from uh, uh, the original roots of Genentech and then being acquired by Roche and then jumping to a completely different cult, uh, culture in Europe? What was that like? Yeah, so, so I left... Um, my first site in, in Oceanside. And I went to, to work, um, at Roche in South Carolina, uh, because I wanted a different challenge, a different experience. And that site was going through, um, some problems that needed major remediation. So it was going through some compliance issues. They were having to report, uh, concerns to the FDA, to the European medical agencies and, um, they were in, in dire need of some people to come in and help with that situation and turn it around. And so Jamie and I both um, were offered positions at that site to be part of this remediation. Uh, and that was a totally different culture and dynamic from what we had experienced in California, uh, which was uh, the California site was kind of a, a very lean and operationally excellent site with... Uh, you know, a very strong culture of, you know, excellent performance, but the, the, the site in South Carolina was not that. Uh, so that was a, a, you know, great learning experience to, to be part of turning that around. Um, and then, you know, we, we had children at this time and, um, we were looking to, we had both really appreciated our experience in Europe when we had been in the army. And so, um, we were looking to do an, uh, an expat assignment with, you know, part of the goal being to expose our children to other cultures and the fact that there's a world outside of the U S and, um, 
And so um, we really were actively pursuing to get assignments in, in Switzerland and uh, had to, to navigate through that. Um, that, was, that was a difficult uh, transition for us because uh, trying to get two of those at the same time is not easy. Um, and we, we had some trials and, and errors there. Um, but I would say, you know, the key thing was getting the right, the right sponsors in place at the company in Europe to help sponsor us um, over there. But yeah, then we, we were assigned to go over there and, and stayed in Switzerland for five years. Um, and uh, it's, it's funny because when I first interviewed to work in Switzerland, I almost didn't get the job because of my, my military experience. Um, and I didn't realize that at the time. So when I interviewed, I did this um, virtual interview with, with like five different people and they were all German and Swiss. And um, they started to ask me questions and, and it made me realize like they seemed to have an impression, an impression that the U.S. military was like full metal jacket. So they thought that I was going to show up and be yelling at people and like boot camp. Um, <laughs> and they started to ask me about like, how are you going to how are you going to not yell at people and give them commands? And I was like, why are they asking me these questions? But it just revealed to me that they had this, even though they respected that I had gone to a, a place like West Point, and they, they just had a, a view of the military in a negative light uh, for, for a lot of these people in Europe. And uh, so I, I learned that I had to somewhat downplay my background uh, from West Point and the military. Um, so that, that was a new, new cultural learning for me. The balance of work and raising children in Europe um, that you, you and Jamie were looking for. Yeah. How did that go? What were you guys able to do? Um, you know, that, that, was, that was really great at the time we were there. Um, I was glad my, my children were a little bit older because I have to say that, um, especially in, in Switzerland, um, there's very, very little daycare or childcare options. Um, you know, there's really more of this traditional mindset that, you know, the mom is staying at home and, um, so you don't really need childcare. <laughs> so fortunately my kids were already in, in elementary school at the time. Um, the good thing about Switzerland is that it's very safe and, uh, and the children are also taught to be very independent from a young age. And so you'll see the children get on the public transportation on the trams and they go to school by themselves and, or they walk all by themselves to school, you know, on a long path. And, and so, um, you know, my, my children also started to do this, um, probably after we were there for almost a year, we were comfortable with them getting on the public transportation themselves. They would ride the tram to school every day and, um, and they loved it. And, you know, in, in Switzerland, it's really a very pristine and clean and, and safe system. And so that, that helps. Um, and, you know, again, with my background in, in being interested in language and culture, I, it really wasn't an option for me to have the kids go to this country and not learn the language. And so we put them in a school that was, um, 
a bilingual school. And so they were immersed. They, they, would, they had to learn German. They spoke in German one day and English the next day. And they had all their classes um, on German, in German on the German day and in English on the English day. And then they had a foreign language, which was French, that they took every once in a while. But, you know, for, for German and English, the children were all fluent in those languages. And, um, and that was great. That was kind of, uh, and, and all the children they went to school with were, were not just from Switzerland, but they were from all over the place, um, from, from Italy, from Hungary, from, so they were all, you know, expatriate kids in, in these schools for the most part. Um, and for myself, uh, I was working in a, uh, a Swiss site and they told me, they said, you know what, we'll speak English to you for about six months, but then we're switching everything to German. So good luck. <laughs> and, um, and, and that was really what happened. It was, you, I loved my boss there. She was just incredible, but she was very strict about this whole thing. And, um, once we reached that six month point, she would not speak to me in English um, ever again after that. And so I would say for the first year, I was I was somewhat regretting the decision to go there because um, like my brain would hurt. I was so exhausted from trying to concentrate and understand what people were saying. And I was also exhausted with myself because um, I felt like a caveman every time I tried to say something. Um, just, you know, I knew I was fumbling around with the language and I sounded stupid. And I, you know, that just gets, you get tired of, of hearing yourself like that. And <laughs> um, I was like, what have I done? You know, I, I don't know that I'm, I thought I liked languages, but I don't know that I like this whole situation. Um, and, you know, I would say probably into the second year there, it, it started to, I started to get used to it and it became, um, and then in the third year, you know, I was really kind of getting into my, my, my swing with the language. Um, and at that point too, I, I really had probably one of the most significant leadership roles that, that I've had, um, so far, and, and that was the chance to lead um, a, a centralized uh, quality control organization. It was about 320 employees, and um, and they were doing testing for um, over 50 products. Um, so testing them for for things like impurities and and the whole gamut of tests we do on medicines. Um, and I was leading this organization in German. Um, and, and often, you know, having to hear people use the Swiss dialect, which is another complexity there. But, you know, it really put me in a very vulnerable position to be leading and working in, in this language. And, um, and I think that was good for me because actually I learned that that, um, that allowed people to, to feel I was much more accessible when they saw that, that it was a struggle for me um, to be speaking in another language. Many of them, about 30% of them were French and they also had to learn German to, to work at this site. And so I, I, I felt like I received huge empathy and, um, and understanding from the employees that, that I, they saw me very publicly and, and openly in this position. Um, and, 
And I do feel, I remembered even at this time, thinking back to my West Point days, and one of the, the failures I had when I was um, a brigade, uh, the command sergeant major for BEAST, I remember getting some, some feedback, I think it might have been from Dave Udloud, our classmate, about not spending enough time with the troops and that I could have done that more. And I remember that like stinging at the time, like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that? Um, you know, I was too focused on like the processes and the metrics and the results. And, um, and, you know, here I had this opportunity to lead a large organization and I was like, I'm not going to make that mistake again. So I, I spent just an inordinate, inordinate amount of time with the troops, like going out every day. I went to visit a new lab, visit a new team and just asking them about, you know, what, What's holding you up from doing a great job? Uh, and, you know, what are you proud of today? What, what's the improvement you're implementing? And just listening to people. And because I, I wasn't that great at speaking, I could do a lot of listening. And, um, you know, I, I, I do feel like this was a, um, I was really proud at, at the end of the impact I was able to have in terms of making this organization better than when I, got there. So I left it better than when it, when I started and, and that the people's motivation, um, which, you know, we, we could, we could measure through the engagement surveys that we always did. It had really increased quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, it was nice to have this, um, this positive impact on people. And so through the struggle, through the, the transition, uh, you got a lot out of it and you were able to give a lot back to your company. Um, your family, that immersion in, uh, in European culture, in (laughs) Switzerland, in language. Yeah. Ted and unicycles. (laughs) Yeah. My, my kids loved being there too. Um, I remember my son, when we went to Switzerland, he wasn't quite keen on learning another language, but, um, he was sad when we left. Um, so they loved it there. Um. And, and my daughter, who is always, we call her the anomaly because she is always doing something a little bit off or a little bit strange. Um, and I worried about that when she was little. I'm like, what? She's not like the other kids. <laughs> but, but it's great. It's, um, it's great to have this. And she took it upon herself to learn how to unicycle. And, um, you know, she was seeing these circus acts or circus trainers and she wanted to learn how to do that so so she learned how to do this and and she was taking um, a speech club in school and the um, sponsor of that club was asking all the children there if any of them had any good ideas that they wanted to do a speech about and he was asking them because he was looking for candidates to um, to be the first child to do a TED talk in in, in Basel in Switzerland. And, and so my daughter had the idea of, of talking to people about what it had been like for her to learn how to ride the unicycle, which was um, not easy at first. She had a lot of failures at first and she wanted to talk about that and how, like what were some of the, what got her past that. And, and so she was chosen to do a TED talk on learning to ride the unicycle and um, this was just a great 
great experience to be part of, um, to be part of those TED talks where they really, uh, they really prep you well to do the speech. Um, and, and she was just phenomenal. She was the first child that they had to do a, a TED talk there. And, and they've continued that now to have a child each year come and do this. But um, they're really, really neat to watch her go through this process and, and um, you know, be a witness to that. It, it's an absolutely amazing video. I really liked it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. The return back to the United States. Um, what was that like? What was the decision process there? Yeah, so we we had reached our our limit in terms of how long you can stay out of the country and and be um, on an assignment in Europe. Um, and after that point, you have to localize. Um, and we didn't we didn't want to localize. I think we had we had reached the end of our maybe patience uh, <laughs> with <laughs> with ways. Even though it's a, I would you know, totally recommend people live there for a few years or go visit, but. Um, we, we realized that we missed the U.S. a lot. Uh, we missed how uh, kind and open people are in the U.S. to strangers. Uh, we missed just the innovative and crazy side of the U.S. Um, the U.S. is a little bit messy, and, and we missed that. Um, think nothing's messy in Switzerland. Everything is as it should be, is very rigid, very controlled. Uh, so... So we knew we had to come back to the U.S. once we reached this point. And um, it was in the middle of COVID. And, uh, and our company was going to relocate us back to San Francisco. And um, we, we stopped in Pittsburgh on the way back to San Francisco and um, stopped to see my parents and stayed there for a little while. And during that time, we were still trying to find a house to live in in San Francisco and um, and at that time, San Francisco was on fire. It was like orange with fires and um, housing prices were, you know, upwards of three million to buy a house. And, and you know, we just start, it started to dawn on us that geographically we weren't feeling right about the fit um, of, of San Francisco uh, for, for how we wanted to live and how we wanted to spend our money and and even, you know, the schools there were taking a very hard stand on, on their COVID precautions. And it just, it didn't feel right. Um, and so knowing that, that and, and we were also feeling like, wow, you know, we've been at the same company for 15 years now. And maybe it's time to, to look elsewhere. You know, the company has evolved and changed and it's not the same as, as when we started. And uh, so, so we both started to look for other jobs. And, um, and we were looking for, for jobs within the biotech industry, which is pretty concentrated in, in San Francisco, in Boston, and North Carolina are some of the big hubs, uh, Southern California too. So we were looking in those areas. Um, and, you know, we, we, um, we both identified some really promising opportunities that we were excited about in the Boston area uh, that involved leaving our, our company and, and doing something else. And, and so um, we decided to pursue those at the same time and see, you know, like, let's see if these both work out together. And, um, and they did. And, and so, um, yeah, we, 
we had gone to see Boston. We had a good feeling about Boston, just the uh, the the environment. Um, it, it seemed like there was um, it was it really felt like it was a good fit for our family and and um, and our values and um, also just great education programs that they have here um, as we're getting ready for our daughter to go to college. So um, so yeah, that's where we are now. And, and so looking back on the last 20 years, yeah. um, twofold, uh, number one, how much of an impact, and I, and I know you've laced it throughout, um, did your experience and your decision to go to West Point have on, on where you are now and the decisions you're making now? Yeah. I, w- I would say that um, probably, even though there were so many things that, that I loved at West Point and um, happy memories I have of, of my friends and just our classmates and, and crazy things we did, probably what, what stuck with me the most and has had the most impact in the choices I've made uh, especially since leaving the army, have been the fact that I did very, I did things that were challenging for me um, at West Point that I didn't do well at at first. That that I had many failures there, um, and I went to West Point because I wanted a challenge, and I got that challenge. And part of part of being challenged means that you don't you don't do well sometimes at first, that you fail, and so. Um, that, that has had a huge impact on me because I think it, it really, it built two things, that muscle of empathy um, that I think is so important as a leader, that, that you learn that, you know, you're not perfect, other people aren't perfect, people are going through things in their life and, and you've got you've to work with that and tailor the situation so that they can be successful. Um, and, and also, I think it, it really builds that resilience and that ability to uh, bounce back from, you know, that, that shame of failure and to not let that get you just quagmired in not being able to move forward. And, and so I, I think that in each experience that I've had in my civilian career, I've tried to make myself very uncomfortable and to do something that I don't think that I can quite do. And, and I lean back at those times when I'm feeling a bit of regret, like, uh-oh, <laughs> have I gotten over my skis here and I'm, you know, into, I'm not going to be able to do this. And, you know, I'll even on those days, on the toughest days, put, I don't wear my ring every day, but I'll put it on and I'm thinking about, uh, like, I've done difficult things before and, um, and I was able to overcome and, um, and I can do it again. So I think that that's the biggest impact that it's had on me. Um, and, and for sure, just the relationships. Um, I, I don't think that I still even, you know, I work with great people, very smart people, but um, I just haven't been able to find the kind of friendships uh, that, that I, I have from my West Point days that were, um, still long lasting. Um, I, I probably relate the best to the people who had that common set of difficult experiences with. And then the final question, um, balancing family 
and the careers of, of, of two very capable people and, and, and what appears to be very capable kids. How did you do that? And how did you make those decisions? Um, you know, I think that I'm, I'm very fortunate um, to have Jamie as my husband, as somebody who, um, you know, I, I, I feel like we have an equal partnership and um, we both contribute to to both the domestic work and uh, and not just the work at work. Um, and, and so, you know, that's one thing that, that Jamie has always respected me in being able to pursue a career and um, is doing things like we share the cooking, we share um, doing the chores and picking up the kids. And, and we've, we've also flexed on that at times. Um, when, when our kids were first being born, Jamie was getting his MBA at the time um, outside of work. And, and so that, that probably left a little bit more on my plate to handle. Um, but then later, you know, five years down the road, I was getting my MBA and, um, and he, was, he was left with a greater burden uh, to carry. And, you know, he'd go take the kids out camping on the days when I had to go do MBA um, school. And, and so, you know, we've flexed at times um, and, and then we've been very careful very thoughtful about each of these big transitions that we've made um, to make sure that it's the right thing for both us and for the the kids. Um, And in some cases, you know, I think each of us at one point has taken on a role that we, we weren't quite all that thrilled about. We felt like, "Eh, you know, it's okay, but you know, it, it was, it was the right thing in terms of one of us not being as busy as the other at the same time. Uh, I think that that's, that's hard. Uh, I see that too for, you know, dual military couples. If if two people are trying to do these maybe battalion commands or or brigade commands at the same time, I think that that makes things harder. So, um, and we continue to, to just, um, just try and be careful about that, that we're modulating, um, and, and I do like that advice from, from that book. There's a book, I think it's called 10, 10, 10, uh, Susie Welch about, you know, not, not trying to kill myself about, um, not being at every single event for the kids. And, um, you know, I, we're definitely not helicopter parents. We just can't, we can't be, um, but, you know, thinking about those those events and important moments for the kids where 10 years down the road, will I regret that I haven't been there for my kids at these events? Um, and, and for those, you know, I, I work that into to my schedule to be, um, you know, going to the kids' school and, and going to these events and, and all of their sporting events. Um, you know, definitely work that into the schedule that at least one of us, if not both of us, can can be there. Um, so I think, you know, there are some weeks where, you know, I just feel like everything's falling apart. We can't, (laughs) we can't do all the things we want to do. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, but you know, we, we do try, um, try our best to be there for the important things with our kids. And uh, I think just the type of person I am too, that if I wasn't working in a fully engaged career. I just, I don't know that I would be such a great, uh, 
I'd probably be micromanaging my kids, which um, <laughs> they don't need. <laughs> yeah. Again, um, thank you very much, Natalie. It was a great conversation today. Um, and, and thank you're you for welcome, your feedback. Um, and thank you for what you're doing for our classmates. This is really incredible. It's great to hear the stories and the whys and the mm -hmm. hows. Sometimes we only see the where, wins and whats. Um, but it's nice to see behind why they made the decisions they did uh, and how they did the incredible things they did. And it was cool hearing that about you and Jamie today. Yeah, and I and I hope that that um, you know some of these stories will will resonate with with people that hear them too. That um, I know I struggled with that throughout my career was trying to hear from other dual career couples or um, you know how have they how have they done things and is that even possible? And I did hear from a lot of people like it's not possible, you can't do it. And I think it is good to hear like you know it is possible. Um, it's you you can work through these things. Definitely. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.